Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Episode 262. 262 is the area code for southeastern Wisconsin. In 1962, the first Walmart store opened in Arkansas, and the first James Bond theme song was composed. I saw my proctologist and complained about all of this bleeding coming out of my ass. He ignored me and kept pushing his cart at Walmart. Sometimes for fun, I put an Alka-Seltzer in my mouth, pretend I'm foaming from the mouth, and run around my Walmart saying, the vaccines don't work. Don't know why I find that so funny. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 262nd episode of the Prop G Pod. The dog is on holiday. So in place of our regular scheduled programming, we're sharing our interview with Carol Spahn, the director of the Peace Corps. We discussed with Carol the Peace Corps' history and evolution, its adaptation after the pandemic, and the metrics Carol uses to gauge success. Additionally, she shares insights from her own service experience and highlights the transformative impact of stepping out of one's comfort zone. So with that, enjoy our conversation with Carol Spahn. Carol, where does this podcast find you? DC. Let's bust right into it. Can you give us uh, sort of the brief history of the Peace Corps, what the mission is, how it's evolved? Absolutely. So Peace Corps was founded in 1961 by then President John F. Kennedy, um, ramped up very quickly on a, really what was an experiment at the time of putting young people, um, young professionals into service in communities around the world. And he really asked people, you know, don't ask what you can do, um, your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Are you willing? Are you willing to go to Ghana and serve as a doctor? Are you willing to go to a place you've never been and to serve? And there was an overwhelming response, both from the countries that were approached to see if they wanted to host Peace Corps volunteers and from volunteers themselves. And Peace Corps has been a steady presence in more than 60 countries around the world for the last 62 years and has invited professionals of all ages to go and serve. They live and work in a community. So they integrate into that community. They learn the local language. They live at the level of the people they are serving for two years. 
And that two years is really important. So it is a significant investment of time in working side by side. And the premise is that world peace and friendship is not the exclusive mandate of politicians. It is about each and every one of us going and living and working together across difference, creating relationships, creating connections, and that those connections last a lifetime. How has the volunteer base changed or evolved, or is it, is it, or has it not? What is the typical Peace Corps volunteer? And I imagine you're going to tell me there's no typical Peace Corps volunteer, but how has the makeup of the people drawn to the Peace Corps shifted since, since 1962? Well, I, I will give you the answer that you expected to hear, which is there is no typical volunteer. Um, I served as a Peace Corps country director in Malawi for five years, one of the poorest countries in the world. I had a volunteer who was the youngest serving volunteer at the time. She was 20, had been homeschooled, got through college very quickly, decided to do the Peace Corps, and the oldest serving volunteer at the time, who was 82. And she said, I was not content sitting on my rocking chair uh, watching reruns. I needed to get out in the world and, and do something, and I want to encourage everyone to, to do that and to be a part of something bigger. We have retired teachers, we have retired business people, um, and we have people who are straight out of undergrad. And it really depends on what the country's needs are for skilled professionals um, or just for young, passionate, energetic people who are going to come and engage with their young people. But uh, do the majority have a college degree? Do the majority go on to professional services? Do you drop people usually that end up in healthcare? Do a disproportionate number of alum go into government? Great question. So yes, the vast majority do have a college degree, and that is because of the requests and requirements from the host government. So we do our very best to honor the requests that countries are asking us for. Many of them go on to careers in service, but they also go on to careers in, in business and other fields. There is a direct pathway into federal service. So volunteers who complete their service get to a year of, sorry, a year of non-competitive eligibility for um, federal service. So we have thousands and thousands of volunteers in return volunteers at USAID, at the State Department, EPA, FEMA, and a lot of employers who specifically recruit volunteers because they know and understand the skill sets that they bring back from their service. And those skill sets are things like adaptability, flexibility, resilience, intercultural competence, all skills that are desperately needed in today's workforce. So I think of the Peace Corps as being one of the, it's truly a global brand. It's this iconic brand that's recognized, at least I think every American knows where the Peace Corps is. But how do you measure success? So what are your metrics for if, if they said, Carol, we want you to leave the Peace Corps better than when you found it, and you have 10 years, what would the metrics, what does success look like? Is it to promote goodwill towards America? Is it to build skills among the core such that they're better prepared to come back and be good citizens? Is it just to 
build uh, health and societal infrastructure in nations that maybe don't have access to those types of things? What would be the metrics you would put in place that uh, would indicate what success looks like for the core? Sure. So it, it happens at different levels, and I'd like to break it down. So for the volunteers themselves, um, we are looking at their competencies that they grow and develop over the term of their service and how they then are bringing that service and that servant mind distance back to the United States. For their time in country, we are looking at you know, what is the educational achievement of the students with whom they teach? You know, what is the impact on issues like malaria, like um, HIV prevention? How have we impacted some of those key development needs in country? But really, as we look long term, the impact of the Peace Corps is much bigger than the impact of any one volunteer in one community for two years. What I see when ministers, foreign ministers come into my office and say, when can the Peace Corps come back? We need you back. And by the way, I was taught by a volunteer and it matters to my country because we have this incredible youth bulge. English is the language of opportunity. It's the language of business. And what your volunteers bring is hope and energy and passion and skills that can help us to develop over time. That is powerful. And that's a powerful generational impact. Um, that, that generational impact of goodwill towards the United States and, um, you know, real passion for connecting across difference is very difficult to put in a metric. And there are some people who have tried. There is a, a research study that shows the impact of volunteers and the corresponding um, favorability ratings and what happens when that number goes up or down over a period of decades. Um, that is the closest to a metric on the broad scale um, that I have seen. Um, I would say the longer term impact is more in the intangible goodwill space. And the way I really like to, to talk about it is it's, it's goodwill on the balance sheet of the United States. Having a country that invests money, right? We trade, we, may, we might build a hospital. That means one thing that, you know, people might remember for five years or 10 years. Having an American who shows up in a community, learns the language, integrates into the culture, lives at the level of the people they're with, works side by side with them for two years, that shows that America cares, that people care in countries that are very relationship-based. And that human connection is one of, you know, the most powerful indicators of this lifelong connection that people then have for the communities where they serve. Where would you describe that the Peace Corps Brand. I hate to use the term brand, but where is it its reputation in terms of popularity, the number of applicants relative to the number of spots? How would you describe the state of play uh, around the Peace Corps right now in our society? I would say that, that the COVID-19 pandemic distorted everything. So when I think about the Peace Corps 
brand, I think about it on both the demand side. So what are we hearing from countries as well as, you know, what's happening with potential volunteers? We left every country during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was the first time Peace Corps has ever globally evacuated in its 62-year history. As we are sending volunteers back into service, we gave every country the option to opt out. Said, do you want us back or do you not want us back? Every single country wants us back. They want us back in bigger numbers. Um, Every country has been impacted by COVID. And we have a backlog of 14 countries that have formally requested volunteers. And these are numbers that I haven't seen before where countries are asking for a thousand volunteers in their country so that they can put a teacher in every high school. Um, typically a country might have a hundred volunteers, right? So there's just this insatiable demand around the world. What we are seeing in the United States is the impact of, we'll call it a COVID hangover. Right. People are still just sort of coming out of, you know, this, this COVID pandemic and deciding where they want to move and where they want to go. Um, Peace Corps brand awareness is down because we didn't have volunteers in the field for two years and they are our best recruiters at any particular time. We might have had 6,500, 7,000 volunteers out there telling their stories and encouraging other people to go. So we are building that back up. We have a bold invitation campaign that is out right now, and we're seeing very good results. People want to take action. They want to do something bold and courageous. And Peace Corps is a terrific opportunity for them to really stretch beyond their comfort zone and do something that is transformative in ways they will never imagine. Um, but it has been tough. And all of the employers, all of the service organizations are facing challenges with recruitment as people decide sort of how they are going to move forward in their lives. Is it a challenge of the number of applicants or similar to the armed services where I think I read somewhere three and four just don't have the skills or the physical strength. And in some, we're creating, we have a disproportionate number of young Americans who aren't emotionally or physically viable for this type of service. Are you having trouble getting applicants or trouble getting uh, qualified applicants? So I would say it's a complex picture right now. Um, Applications are down and the number of people who we can clear for service is also down. So it's a, it's a higher percentage that are not clearing. Um, and we are trying to tease out sort of why people are dropping out of the process. Um, and is that because, you know, they're not ready or is it because they have another opportunity? So it's a mixed bag right now with a lot of speculate dynamics. That, Carol? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, this is really interesting. This is, this is an opportunity to do something really important. It's something, it's just a really good rap. No one says, no one says, oh, well, I, I don't like that person. They served in the Peace Corps. You just don't ever hear that. It, it is it is one of the few I, things I, I can imagine that you put on your resume and is impressive to anybody you meet. 
And you know, generally speaking, generally speaking, says you're a an interesting, credentialed, good person. So it just a it's surprising you don't get more applicants. But what is it about? Why aren't people clearing? Is it uh, you're on the front lines here, seeing these this application pool? What do you think is happening in our society where people aren't as interested, not as interested? And why do applicants? Why is a greater proportion of applicants not kind of up to the task, if you will? Everything I have looked at does not point to a single factor, and we're digging in. So once someone is invited to the Peace Corps, it is a six to eight month process for them to get legally cleared, medically cleared, and ready to go. That is something that just simply takes time. And in this environment, there are plenty of job opportunities, right? A lot of life is happening, right? And people may be questioning their decisions. I don't know. What I do know is that it's a tight job market and there is a, a sense of, and, and I forget where I read this, something about sort of the, the impatience, wanting more immediate results. Um, another thing I've questioned is the two-year commitment, which is a fundamental part of our model. And, you know, is that something that people start to second guess the, the time frame? We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Talk a little bit about your own experience. You were a volunteer in Romania. What were the biggest surprises to the upside and the downside around your service? So I entered service having um, been in corporate America. So I was accounting. I was with KPMG, Pete Marwick. I was doing the, the corporate thing, worked for a mortgage bank, and then went to Peace Corps in Romania as a small business development volunteer. And I had expected Peace Corps at that point in my life, to be in Africa, um, in Southeast Asia, you know, somewhere doing more hands-on sort of work. And here I was in this post-communist country. It was four years after the fall of communism. And I had to have my mom send my suits over because I was working in Eastern Europe at a small business consulting center and working with um, entrepreneurs trying to start up their own businesses as an entire economy was shifting from a state-run economy to um, private enterprise. 
And it was a fascinating experience to understand how communism played in the psyche of people, the distrust that it created and to experience that sort of firsthand, but also to see sort of where those sparks are, where the the opportunities were to really engage with the right people. And, and anytime you're engaging, you know, in helping start up a new business or anything else, you're, you're ultimately investing in the, the person, right? And so it was an exercise in finding the right people who really had the skills and interest in moving forward and creating something new in an economy that was transitioning. And I grew up in the Cold War era, so had lots of preconceptions about what communism meant um, and, and what it might have been like to live in that world. That was just a fascinating time in history to be a part of that transition. And you went back 10, 20 years later to be the country director for Malawi. Is that correct? Yes. What draws you? I mean, you were a, a successful executive. I imagine had a pretty nice life. I mean, that just can't be easy or that comfortable uh, to, to head to a developing nation and give up a life of, you know, professional success and the comforts that come along with that. What drew you to that? And did you have kids at the time? And what it strikes me that that takes a special type of person that, quite frankly, I have a difficult time relating to. <laughs> I just I just like Netflix too much. What is sort of what drew you to that? I think my first comment to that would be that comfort is overrated. My favorite quote that I shared with volunteers is that, you know, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And I distinctly remember standing on the sidelines of my daughter's soccer game. She was high school at the time, and she wasn't getting any playing time. And I was getting quite enraged, as any good mother, any good soccer mom would do, because quite clearly she was the most gifted one out there. Um, and I said to myself, like, this is not, this is not what I should be getting enraged over. And when the opportunity came to go back uh, to the Peace Corps, it also came at a time when my brother um, had reached the end of a five-year battle with brain cancer. And the call came almost around the same time as, as he was told that there was nothing more they could do for him. And... It was a really powerful moment for me to say to myself and to talk with the family and say, look, this is, this is something that's important to do. And, you know, we can do it now or, or we can do it at a future period. But, you know, this is, I, I did not feel like we were living. I felt like we were going through the motions of a life that is defined by certain norms of society. And I had learned through my Peace Corps experience and through all of the people I'd met throughout that, that there is not, there is not one way 
to live and that there are a lot of rich opportunities to grow personally that outweigh all of the other things that that people might care about or think about in terms of success and it's um you know every time i've gone back out into that world um i have just grown in in leaps and bounds my bank account didn't grow but i i my life has been personally enriched in so many ways so when i went back to peace corps as a, a country director uh, my oldest was going into her senior year in high school and my youngest was going into her sophomore year and my husband was giving up a job teaching and we sat down as a family and said oh this is something that ought to scare you um it's you know we would be going to a country where there are you know no malls no movie theaters you'll go to a high school where there are not great sports teams um you know there's a lot at stake here and we're not going to ask you to do it unless you are 95 percent in if you're all in then you know you're not really thinking clearly but you know you need to be all in because this this is represents a very big change um for our family and they were they were in yeah, I think that's really powerful. So recognizing, and I, I'm I'm going to try and summarize and tell me where I have this wrong, recognizing the finite nature of life because of the passing of your brother and an acknowledgement that it's, you know, it goes fast and that you need to dictate your life, that stepping outside of what other people expect or what society expects of you does not does not dictate your happiness. You dictate your happiness. I find that really moving and really powerful, and it just sort of like hits you like, well, of course, that's the way to live your life, even though most of us don't. The thing I find unusual, quite frankly, is that a sophomore and senior girls agreed to go to Malawi. <laughs> I, just, I find that extraordinary. I can't even imagine my sons would be like, well, are we flying Emirates? You know, they'd start asking questions about, do they have PlayStation? I can't even... I can't even imagine the, the how awful the conversation or weird the conversation would be. So you had 10th and 12th grade girls, and they decided to come uh, live with you and your husband in Malawi for how long? We were there for five years. The girls were there for, you know, they finished up their high school and went off to college in the U.S. and then came back on their breaks. What was the hardest thing about spending five years doing that? It was very challenging having them in college and so far away so that if something happened, there wasn't an easy way to get to them um, and being far from family and, and all of those things that you miss. All of the things that you would expect that would be challenging uh, living and working in a country like Malawi um, had tremendous benefits. And there are so many elements to that that you you learn and absorb over time. So uh, I'll give you an example. Life is obviously very challenging in Malawi. Um, 85% of the people there are subsistence farmers and regular outages of 
electricity and water and just all of the basics. Every day, something would surprise me, whether it was a little boy dancing on the street or, you know, the electricity, the water that goes out in the middle of your shower or, you know, just just any unexpected thing. And yet every day, the janitor at our office building who did not make great money, had six kids, would greet me with the biggest smile, a huge wave, and a good morning, madam. And every single day, there was tremendous laughter in the hallways. And I would ask people, I know you spent the weekend in in the hospital with your loved one who has malaria, and I know your lives are hard, and you show up every day with a lot of care and a lot of community. Like, how do you do it? Like, I would show up grumpy, right? I would be grumpy thinking about all of the things I had to do that day until I got this beautiful greeting from the from the groundskeeper. And they told me, Carol, it's a it's a choice we make for each other. We make a choice to show up every day for each other, knowing that our lives are hard and their lives are hard. And we bring laughter and joy to our days. And it's not because our lives are easy. It's because it's a choice we make. So you made the leap that I think a lot of us are envious of. And you said, I'm going to I'm going to set the rules for what makes me happy and how I want to live my life. But what is it about this that makes you happy? Is it service? Is it adventure? Is it a sense that you're doing something different? Is it roughing it and feeling a sense of achievement that you've endured this? Like, What is it about this that makes you happy? So I, I've read and studied a lot about the the things that make people happy. And I think at the end of the day, it's purpose and meaning and connection. Those are the things that that make people happy. And I believe so fundamentally in the Peace Corps' mission and the way we approach our work. And during my time in Malawi, I saw probably 500 volunteers come through and I watched them get off the plane, very eager and optimistic and excited. And I never called it an adventure. I always said, this is not an adventure. It's a journey. And there's a big difference because a journey you walk side by side and you know that there are going to be highs and lows. Um, And I went through highs and lows, much higher highs and much lower lows with people than they probably ever expected. And then I met with them at the end of this two-year, just transformational experience. And they were people with tremendous depth because they had taken this risk to go out and do something unexpected. So for for me, it's the purpose and the meaning that, that drives me every day and makes me love my work. And I think if you spoke to you know, any person who volunteered or any of the staff members here, there are good days, there are bad days, just like anybody else, but they are passionate about their work. 
Purpose, meaning, and connection. Carol Spahn is an American government official currently serving as the director of the Peace Corps. She brings a wealth of experience in international development, having served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Romania and held executive positions in organizations including Women for Women International and the Accordia Global Health Foundation. Spahn previously served as acting director and CEO of the Peace Corps. She is dedicated to promoting global cooperation, empowering communities, and leading the Peace Corps in its mission to create positive change worldwide. She joins us from her office in our nation's capital. Carol, I, I'm just, I'm just, it is so heartening that such talented, decent people continue to go to work uh, for our government. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you so much for having us. This episode was produced by Caroline Shaven. Jennifer Sanchez is our associate producer and Drew Burrows is our technical director. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Saturday for No Mercy, No Malice, as read by George Hahn, and on Monday with our weekly market show.